0: Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week, our trailblazer is the Executive Vice President of Renewables and Energy Solutions at Shell, Elizabeth Brinton. A self-professed tree hugger, provocateur and change agent, our conversation connects an incredible array of dots across capital, storage, technology, policy, innovation and partnerships. And the thing I love most about Elizabeth is the way that she always anchors to the end solution a just energy transition. Elizabeth passionately encourages us all to use this moment in time to bring everyone along on the journey. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation, and it starts with you. Elizabeth, I am really excited about this conversation. I was fascinated reading about you in preparation because, you know, for someone who can count the invention of a stay fresh salad bag and a Silicon Valley tech IPO on your CV, you know, this self-described kind of technologist and change agent, I'm thinking, how did you end up in energy?
1: Well, it's it's a really good question. It really comes out of my personal passion because if you think about the conversations we're now having about digital, for example, even with Bitcoin mining, there's a recognition of the tremendous amount of electricity and energy demand and load that these technologies require. And so I saw that back in the day. And so I was part, and it was a huge privilege with Mark Andreessen to be part of the founding executive team of LoudCloud. And so we actually named it the cloud, which is, of course, now ubiquitous. And so in that role, I was actually a pioneer, even though I was in high tech and building that amazing company and helped taking it public. But I was actually a pioneer in energy efficiency. So we were working at that time. We were all of a sudden pioneering things like server virtualization and all these concepts. And when there was a, and I had a personal recognition that the tech that I loved actually was a huge demand on the environment and a huge requirement of energy. And as we thought about the exponential, of how everything digital was going to be ubiquitous in our lives, from our phones to you know all the things that as a, as a future working person in high tech, I could see it. And so as a result, way back then, I was working with a pioneering committee with U.S. Department of Energy on the beginning of the PUE standards for data centers. And so after the IPO and, and I was thinking about the next step of my own life, I really made a personal conscious choice To take my love, and I grew up in Seattle, Washington, hugging trees from when I was a kid. So (laughs) I have a huge passion for nature. And I saw the connection between air quality, you know, now we call it climate change, but back then it was weather and air quality. And so the vocabulary has changed, but the principles are the same. So I saw that linkage. And so I made the conscious choice for the next chapter of my life. I want to take that love of digital, that application of leading edge software to the energy transition. And so I was very, very fortunate then to have the opportunity to join the executive team of a fabulous utility in California, SMUD, which was because of it's, it's a special district under the California constitution. So it's a private business that has to hit returns and, and perform financially, but it, as a special district corporation, We also had more freedom to actually leapfrog ahead. So as part of the executive team at that time then, I was um, helped then create landmark congressional legislation that actually helped us fund and leapfrog forward in the energy transition in California. Now those firsts are well-known. So for example, the very first carbon market, what came after AB 32, the very first renewable portfolio standard, all those things I had the privilege of being part of authoring um, with many other pioneers like Mary Nichols in the day. And so it was a conscious choice. And then ever since then, it's just been building foundation, foundation. And so part of those utility transformations led to Shell and moving, moving me around the world because I took the show on the road as we were talking about a minute ago globally. Uh, then at the opportunity, Shell called. And, and I thought, wow, you know, here's an amazing branded company, 26th most valuable consumer brand on the planet. Sincere about transitioning the company and figuring this out. And I, th- you know, and the fact of the matter, very practically, is that big change takes big dollars and big balance sheet. And so Shell became the perfect platform because it has the balance sheet and it's at its core just a really, really good company with a great brand. And so I'm, it's just an honor to be here.
0: Oh, well, you'd answered so many of my questions in terms of wanting to understand what high school you would have wanted to do, but I love that you're a tree hugger from Seattle from way back. And just, you know, that intentionality you had when you picked that chapter on, this is what I'm going to do. You know, the choices that you made around why yes to any given company. And it sounds like from your point, you wanted to get involved at the, where you your your change, your work, your energy could have the greatest ripple effect in terms of the overall impact. Would that be a fair way of surmising that? That's a, that's a brilliant summary. So uh, very good, Holly. <laughs> that's spot on. <laughs> so talk to us about joining I And you joined in, in 2018, steering the company's work in power, renewables and low-carbon tech. You've built a career on driving change. You talked about big change takes big dollars. How do you walk into a role like that and even on day one start to think about how am I going to have my impact here? How do I think about a, a level of change that's at that, that scale?
1: Well, it's a great, it's a great question. And part of it is it always takes a huge amount of humility because you have to come in and part of what you have to do in any good relationship, you have to listen. You have to step back and go, okay, there was clearly a mandate and a desire to move forward, but actually, where is the company now? So I joined at the very end of 2018. So just before Christmas. So really my first year was 2019. And so that was the year before the pandemic. And so, of course, we didn't know the pandemic was happening. But at that time, one of the first responsibilities that I had was actually to work with our board and actually create an agreement around a strategy on a go forward for new energies and renewables and energy solutions. And so because there was not a coherent strategy. And so as any good publicly listed company, that's the requirement of the board to set the strategy and set the direction and so, part of my first job was actually facilitating those very challenging conversations because a lot of the new technology, a lot of the solutions that we can see from a net zero emissions perspective are the future. They're not necessarily all economic today in their business models. Plus, with any company, when, you're, when you really get down to it and you're talking about fuel switching and replacement and cannibalization, these are really tough topics Uh, for any corporate to think through and think about, well, what's the timing? Because we're doing this for our shareholders. So how do you maintain the value for your shareholders today while you're building a foundation to transition? These are very, very challenging topics, and nobody has a crystal ball, right? So one of the things that has made me effective, I think, as a change agent through my whole career is is that combination of passion and vision on the one hand and a huge work ethic, (laughs) but But also deep humility and a curiosity, willing to listen and go, I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out together. And then pull together and build the, you know, bring the the brightest minds, bring the provocative outside opinions, you know, and then facilitate that type of conversation. So that's what we did in 2019. We really set the stage. We made some key foundational investments also in 2019. So, for example, uh, we acquired what was ERM Power in Australia which really fit exactly the archetype for our integrated strategy that leverages Shell strengths. And so this is the other key thing as well. Every company, even in the same sector, has different business models. So Shell has a huge world-class global trading organization, is one of the it's the leading commodities trader on the planet. Therefore, what was very clear and obvious to me, especially as with renewables and energy solutions become more distributed a huge advantage for shell is if we could take advantage of that trading capability that global understanding and then and then with that then build integrated business models now that's very different than 100% volume play in just renewables and so this is something that's some of the difficult conversations with capital markets and investors because they want everything to be the same and each company has to take the responsibility of looking at itself and going okay what are our unique competitive advantages and strength. So that was the first part. So when I arrived, I I didn't realize how strong uh, Shell's trading capability was. I learned that and I was like, perfect. That gives us an opportunity to do something differently than our peers. And at the same time, begin this green transition, but in a way that's building strength to strength um, for Shell.
0: Absolutely. And I want to come back to you as a changemaker a little bit later, but let's get into that strategy first and your new energy transition strategy. You've set a lot of targets. Can you give us some more detail, particularly around growing your clean energy and mobility business? What can we expect from your future power business and your e-mobility plans?
1: Absolutely. Well, one of the things to reference as a foundation point Holly is the sky scenario. So Shell has been a leader at at scenario planning for many many years. It was one of the things that attracted me to Shell actually is that willingness to be provocative and push itself in its own thinking. And so one of the things that is key is deep electrification. So currently if you think about end use energy, about 80% of it today is hydrocarbons based. However, with with moving to net zero and the policy um, direction that we're heading um, towards Paris and beyond, that switch, it flips to actually becoming 80% of electrification, including in the hardest to abate sector. So for example, if you look at the steel industry today, there's new electric arc furnaces and new technologies that are coming on that you can combine then with renewables to green hydrogen and actually produce green steel. So one of the things that were that was really important is that became the anchor scenario for Shell. And so then um, in terms of, of disclosures, we've talked about by 2030 selling 560 terawatt hours a year, which is roughly twice as much electricity as we do today. And so, again, this is a really important strategic point. Many other companies give a naked megawatt hour target, which is... A volume target. Now we need tons of renewables, but the differentiation goes back to my point about trading. We, by design, are giving a terawatt hour number because that implies it's anchored on a sale to a real customer, and so it's actually that that capacity and that utilization. Because we believed, and this is part of my experience over many years, <laughs> is that I've learned you have to anchor demand and supply, and so if one gets out of balance with the other. You don't have a commercial sustainable business model. In the early days of solar, for example, we saw so many solar companies go bankrupt in the U.S. It's because it was all volume-based without that underlying match between where the markets were ready to take in all of the solar, even if we knew philosophically it was the right thing to do. So that's that's really, really important. So in part of Shell's targets by design, we've really landed them on value-based targets that are based on real transactions with our customers. That then we know that we're producing EBITDA in the end for our shareholders as we build the business.
0: You talked about like the sustainable commercial reality piece and also I found it really interesting your comment around kind of the need for different business models you know even within the same industry. How do you think as a diversified complex long-standing in many ways a Goliath or a Titanic we could describe turning the ship and starting to play against all these pure play clean energy startups. Not a Titanic. And new companies. We'll, we'll,
1: we'll pick another type of ship Holly <laughs> not a Titanic.
0: But you know it is that whole piece around how, how do you think about the idea of competing against smaller and nimble players or what do you think about an acquisition strategy or where where do they fit and how do you think about Shell relative to kind of pure play, nimble startups? So, in terms
1: of the, the innovation of these companies, first of all, to achieve the big goal for the planet, we need everybody. So, it's exciting. And frankly, with the level of capital that I have to deploy, the challenge is actually not capital, but actually opportunity of good investable companies. So, if there's any listeners out there who are great entrepreneurs and building those um, pure play companies in my space, let us know because we are definitely, which is part of the answer to your question, we are we are part of our growth is through M&A. And so let me give you a specific example that also harks back to your question about targets, which is around EV charging and e-mobility. So clearly that is something that is really important to Shell. It's part of our Shell brand um, you know, we all know the Shell pectin and the the experiences in the different uh, retail stations. Be sure of Shell. So as we move to electric mobility, we want the same consumer brand promise. You can be sure of Shell. What that means then is we need to invest in a huge amount of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Not only modernizing our forecourts where people are familiar, and also including dining experiences and other things like that, and and fast charging, but then also where people are. So Charge points at their home, charge points at work, you know, all these different partnerships. So one of the things that we did is we purchased a, a European company called New Motion and a U.S. company called GreenLots. And together they become two branches of a single tree in terms of our EV charging solutions. And now we're doing fantastic big partnerships with companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Penske. And, um, and it's, it's so exciting because what, we're, so what we've done is those were 100 percent acquisitions. They're in my business, but they have some arm's length autonomy. So what that means is that we're keeping the secret sauce of their speed and their agility, their technology and software platform that made them unique, made us want to acquire them in the first place. But then in the back end, and this is really relevant if you think about the global chip shortage and lots of challenges out there, we're able to bring at the back end the best of shell. We have a world-class contracting and procurement organization, one of the best on the planet. So our contracting and procurement organization, our global legal teams, right now, I mean, they they are worth their weight in gold because of the supply chain challenges coming out of the pandemic and shipping and so forth. So I've got this huge, you know, fabulous, experienced global supply chain organization that I have behind these smaller nimble startups. So ultimately I'm building the best of both worlds. And so that's why you know, our we've been able to say with confidence, we're going to build a charging network from more than 60,000 charge points that we have today to over half a million by 2025 and then onward. And so we have em- growth um, ambitions of over 186% growth over the next decade um, in our EV charging. And so it's the best of both worlds that enable us to do that. And so, for example, we're going to be putting over 800 fast chargers in a leading UK supermarket chain. So it's very convenient. I used one of the uh, fast chargers here in the Netherlands the other day. And, it, and, you know, I went in, stopped in at the service station, got my cup of coffee, uh, used the facilities, you know, freshened up while my, you know, my car was charging. And it was a seamless experience. And so by the time I was ready to get back on the road, my car had 80% charged and it was convenient and easy.
0: Now I want to touch on the detractors and the skeptics and the critics because there's a lot of people outside the energy industry who are extremely skeptical about oil and gas industry playing a leading role in the energy transition and they point to things like continued investment in fossil fuels and anti-climate lobbying and, and climate denialism even. How do you respond to that? And even your journey, you know, in in saying yes to Shell to convince yourself from the standpoint of wanting to be someone that was in an organization that was being the change. Can you talk us through how you respond to those critics, but also, I guess, what you wanted to be sure of yourself before you said yes to Shell? Well,
1: I'm going to answer the first part of your question with a bit of sense of humor, because this gives you an insight of sort of how I roll, which is that um, one of my favorite artists is uh, Taylor Swift. And uh, she has this fantastic song and she laughs about, you know, all the haters, you know, and, uh, you know, and it's such, and it's such a great song because the fact of the matter is if you're ahead and if you're trying to lead change anywhere, you, you get all these people that have animosity, that have skepticism, that point fingers, you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, you're not big enough, you're too, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things I've learned, which is why I love the Taylor Swift song is that, You have to be clear on your motives and your purpose. And then you just have to have a certain degree of a a thick skin and resiliency and soldier on. Because the fact of the matter is, and this is also personally, when I got the call from Shell, a huge part of how I'm made up is is about integrity. And I thought about it and I thought, what do I do as a businesswoman? I do fly on planes. Um, I do have, you know, at the time I had... You know, electric and in a hybrid vehicle. So I still there's some you know dependence on fossil in there. You know, I I have horses. There's no such thing as a hundred percent electric heavy duty horse truck that can haul you know big horses. I mean, they are petrol powered, and I'm not going to stop going to horse shows. <laughs> So, you know, so part of what I realized, if I looked at my own life as green as I am and as focused as, as I am in my own life, like you know my home has solar panels, I have deep energy efficiency i pra- I really put practice everything that I believe in, even so, there were many places in my own life that still touched the basic core products that a company like Shell produces. so I thought, okay, first of all i'm I'm honest with myself and And so that sense of truthfulness, I thought if this is a company, we and we think about society and you think about the economy and all the levers, the role that energy plays in the economy, we truly need a transition. And so people who just say you can just like flip a switch and go, we're going to just go from here to there. You know, to give you an example, our HKN wind farm, massive offshore wind farm. And then it's going to be paired with a 200 megawatt electrolyzer. So you've got over 760 megawatts of green renewable offshore wind coming into a 200 megawatt green electrolyzer at the port of Rotterdam. That's going to produce enough green hydrogen for only 2,000 trucks. Only 2,000 trucks. So if you think about the scale impact and the urgency of the transition, it needs big scale Companies like Shell who can put the capital in, who have the complex engineering organizations, because that also goes back to your early question. There's lots of phenomenal innovative startups, and they do proof of concepts, and their technology works at a smaller scale. But moving any innovation, whether it's you know behind the meter microgrid technology, um, you know smart home, any of these things, when you go from a relatively small up to big. It is an exponential change in all the underlying infrastructure and digital back-end, including your digital backhaul, your telecom, your cybersecurity. That's expensive. It's complicated. And all of this stuff is new still. So it's fraught with risk and challenge. And it also, from a commercial perspective, requires policy change, things in the power markets, in the gas markets, fundamentals around how things are priced in order to make these new types of solutions actually economic and deliver a return for shareholders. So when you talk about transition, part of what I love is the complexity, but that also just gives me the perspective, going back to your core question, that people who are critics, you know, critics, they simply may not understand. And at the same time, people that have a a passion and a voice I deeply respect, because we need to push the hard conversations. We need to Push for pace. And so it takes everyone. And many of you know, one of my one of my closest friends that I just absolutely adore is this is a very senior leader at, at um, NRDC. And, and I'm so grateful for his work as an example. And so together we've been able to part, we partnered back in the day in California on the digital smart meter introductions, how that aligned with solving climate change it takes a village and it takes all of these voices. So for me, I'm quite relaxed and I really welcome the diversity of dialogue because it makes us better. Uh,
0: So much in that answer uh, I want to delve into, but I want to double click for a moment on kind of the the resilience borrowing Taylor Swift's line, you know, shake it off. It's easier said than done. You know, someone who's been at the forefront of some really challenging conversations, I'm astounded to know that, you know, a bullet was shot at your home and things like that. How, at a personal level, do you, Recharge, do you reset after those tough conversations, after moments like that, moments where you're truly kind of feeling like sometimes you're just surrounded by the critics and the naysayers and people who say it can't be done? Personally, do you have any advice for leaders who are maybe feeling in that spot right now?
1: Absolutely, Holly, and I really appreciate that question because ultimately for all of us in our lives, whatever we do in our careers, and I think this is hopefully a take forward lesson from navigating through the unprecedented times of the pandemic as well. We all we have to really anchor ourselves on our own spiritual truth. We have to have a sense of just comfort in your own skin. And so I'm able to have that resiliency because I really genuinely believe in what I do. So if I have a really super hard day, I can go, it was worthy. And so the fights and the and the tough times, the tough conversations, I know it's worthy work and I know that I'm showing up with honesty and integrity. So how are how I then recharge myself? Is I mentioned nature. I love my horses. I go out for a hack in the woods and I just love on my horses and I just, you know, I'm out there and I breathe the fresh air and I, I one of my hobbies that I took up during the lockdown when you couldn't do very much is I've always loved flowers and so I've become quite a hobby gardener and then photographing all my flowers <laughs> and and those simple things that just really ground for me it's grounding in earth so it's literally getting dirt in my fingers petting my horses going for a ride gardening you know taking a walk on the beach holding hands with my husband and you know just watching the seagulls fly I mean it's just very simple. And I think that I hope that for everybody through the pandemic, this experience has reminded us of those simple things in life, the importance of family, the importance of sleep and rest and exercise, the basics. That's what gives us then as human beings the ability to navigate through the complexities of modern life. And so it doesn't matter what career you're in. I mean, I think about our healthcare providers and all the people that are really on the front lines. How we can help each other make sure that we remember these basics, get enough sleep, drink water, you know, take care of yourself, have a sense of whatever
0: it is that refuels you at a spiritual level, that's essential. Absolutely. And you also touched on, you know, anyone who's involved in change is involved in tough conversations. And I wanted to ask you about those because you mentioned having them internally, you've mentioned having them externally. What advice have you got for leaders about leaning into those tough conversations and and seeking to find common ground or at least understanding with people who come from a very different viewpoint and maybe don't at least initially uh, agree with whatsoever what it is that you're seeking to put forward as a source of truth or a contribution to the conversation?
1: Yes. Well, part of that, and you mentioned something when you talk about source of truth. So one of the things that's really important to me is finding, and it's hard in this world, you have to actually do a lot of research to find a neutral fact base. And so generally to do that, that requires triangulating a lot of data and information and pulling insights out so that you then share a fact base. And then the other point, especially in polarization of debate around all these policies and so forth, is to create what I always do is I create a menu and then I say, okay, here's here's a solid fact base of what we understand. And then here and, and then transparency. So neutral fact base, which means a lot of research, but not paralysis by analysis, I want to be clear on that. you can do that with speed. And then transparency so that you have I mean every, everyone who's ever built a financial model knows that you have to put in assumptions. So then how I go about it is that I'm completely transparent about my assumptions. And I say, well, for example, if you think about modeling for the uptake of EVs, you know, you have to assume certain things. And, you know, no one has a crystal ball about the future. So how you bring people along and how you create healthy debate is that you are transparent. So I'm saying, well, you know, in terms of this is, this is my assumption on power pricing. I assume this coal plant is going to be shut down at this date because of German legislation. You know, and so I'm just very transparent about the fact base, very transparent about the assumptions going into my models. And I share that. And so it's, it's I, you know, people talk about devil in the detail. I think there's divine in the detail. <laughs> I love the detail. Because when things are taken up at such an abstraction, then it's very easy to get into opinion. But when you actually get down into the divine of detail and you're transparent and courageous about sharing that, and that comes again, going back to just having a thick skin, it's fine if people disagree with me. bring it on, that's beautiful, because then we can actually have the conversation that needs to be had. So then it's, to me, it's that preparation, coming at it with a pure motive, and then welcoming the diversity of opinion and listening to them, genuinely listening, because one of the things I say often, people... You know, they they stand, you know, they take a stand where they are. So if you are coming from, you know, a particular career path or a particular community, you're going to take a stand based on what you know. That's normal. So having great empathy for that, really listening and then drawing out through questions saying, help me understand. You know, for example, one of the biggest challenges about energy transition is simply about jobs. So, you know, we saw that in Australia very clearly around the coal shutdowns. It's about jobs. And that's the same in in Europe and in in communities, because these are rural communities. These are communities where entire families, generation after generation, have built their livelihoods around those plants and those mines. And so, you you know, we're all very simple people, really. At the end of the day, we're going to fight. For our own well-being and survival and livelihood, so it's incumbent upon us for a just transition to identify new jobs, new opportunities for people in local local communities. So then, you know, if you can have a well-paying job path, then 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 the then the closure of a coal plant becomes no big deal. And so it's about getting to the real issue, that often is nothing to do with energy transition. It's about
0: jobs livelihoods and and personal security at a very local level. I love the phrase just transition. Um, I haven't heard that as a a phrasing in a way of framing the conversation, but I think that's so profoundly important. And I loved uh, neutral fact base and also divine in the detail. I'm going to take that line and run with it. Uh, (laughs) I wanted to touch on you mentioned, you know, once you've got that neutral fact base and you're kind of putting in assumptions into your models, no one's got the crystal ball. There's inherently risk when we make assumptions. Uh, What do you see as the biggest risk for Shell with this transition, uh, energy transition strategy? And what do you risk? I appreciate your point around you know diversity of perspectives. It, what do you see as being potentially a blind spot that could uh, you know emerge or be problematic in relation to the transition?
1: I think I, for and this is not unique to Shell I think this is the case for any very large publicly listed company that's in an incumbent category is that in any incumbent category your investors and this has been a, certainly a challenge for us Is they're divided? So you have ESG investors who are saying yes, go forward. You know, and you know, and this is where they play a really important role. For example, like the Church of England saying yes, we believe in this ESG invest investment path in this transition, and we want you to invest more in renewables. And so we're going to stay in your register. And they've been very vocal about it in the Financial Times, which is invaluable. And I'm you know shout out to to the Church of England. I'm so incredibly grateful for me to do my job. I need ESG investors. Who are courageous and willing to stay in and invest and believe in our balance sheet and help us because we need that capital in order to then in turn transition into new um, these renewables and new energy solution types of business models because let's face it you know one of the biggest challenges has been you know in the in the recent history a lot of the investors in oil and gas particularly uh, you know in the U.S. that's what they just want to monetize um, the hydrocarbon assets and so. For example, renewables have a lower structural return. It's well known. BNF has written um, a lot about the missing money, the differences in terms of the return profiles. So, one of the first things I've had to do at Shell, these are sort of the, the real hard yards of energy transition that people don't talk about very much, is partnering with finance and treasury and actually going, what is the right whack? You know, how do we actually, what's the right financial framework for a very different business? Now, and that has to go all the way through a process and then approved by the board. Those things don't happen overnight. And so this is a lot of, I think this is, you know, part of the value that I bring to the company, having done this before, is really that both the patience, not only the urgency, so it's both, the urgency to push and create pull with customers, but at the same time, also the patience to do the foundational work, like, what is the right financial framework what is the right whack how do we actually make sure that we can deliver shareholder value those hard yards of working with finance and treasury and all those putting those pieces and policies in place that ultimately have board approval that takes time and that takes hard work but you know i love that stuff because that is what means that the transition will actually be sustainable because if you just focus on you know sexy bits of projects you know those projects if they're out of the money they can go away and so i'm forcing the tough conversations and then the and the, the also shell is willing of course because it takes a village you know i have a great partnership with jessica ull our cfo you know really working in together and her team we are we've fundamentally changed and developed a financial framework that's appropriately risk that's fit for purpose for solar and offshore wind. And as a result, we went in and we won HKN, we won Atlantic Shores, Mayflower. It's like now we have, we're on a roll to build a business over time that is going to deliver value for our shareholders. These are the things that, you know, are under the hood, but I'm most proud of.
0: Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you, though, the role of finance, the role of new business models, how integral is that to the success, the scale, the sustainability that we're talking about when we're talking about energy transition? And do you think one of the reasons we're hampered is because we're not seeing enough of that complementing the advent of new technology?
1: It is It is absolutely essential. And so one of the key things that, and I should I should add it onto my, you know, my profile, but, but you know, really, really what is my secret sauce is that combination of digital and technology across physical and digital technology mapped with this business model and finance. And, you know, 25 plus years now of being really involved in the leading edge of finance and sustainability finance and, you know, helping to invent, like we created uh, back in SMUD, we created Solar Shares, which is really the first type of solar leasing program in the world. So so many of my first have all been that are on my CV are all about again this nexus between physical, digital, and financial. And so it's the financial business model and the architecture of how you do that and then how you actually deliver returns and then performance for the capital markets and what these business models are. And then have the hard conversations about, you know, we again transparency. You know, a, a solar project is not going to have the same return. It doesn't have the same risk profile. So how do you match appropriately risk and return and have those those honest conversations as opposed to a lot of people are just like, "Woo!" you know, making stuff up. I think that's been a core part of my secret sauce and success over the course of my career is, is I'm not a banker but it's actually bringing that operational understanding, the financial understanding, and putting those pieces together that is sort of my secret sauce, actually. And, it, you know, for example, I had the privilege of speaking at Davos as part of a panel on sustainable finance earlier this year. And it's a huge passion area for me because we, essentially, if you think about electric vehicle charging, like I was talking about, that should be a new class of bankable asset. It's a new type of infrastructure. We need it everywhere. Um, Range anxiety is real for for people and travelers. And so and so these are thinking about new asset classes. So how do we how do we cooperate with all the different levels of finance from, you know, private equity from all the way up to big family funds and offices that it can have more flexibility, frankly, and then think through the capital stack and how we set up these businesses and ventures and then ultimately the financial framework for big companies. That's the only way we can make the energy transition.
0: Absolutely. I'm so interested in your own personal innovation habits because, you know, it strikes me, you know, what we tend to see, industries think a certain way, companies think a certain way. It's very hard to come in and and continue to have that outside perspective, particularly once we've been inside the tent for a while. How do you support yourself to think outside the box? You know, things like solar shares and where do you you seek inspiration from or where do you read and how do you look at the world in kind of a cross-pollinated way to be able to draw inspiration and ideas from other places?
1: Uh, Thank you. I love that question, Holly, because it is really the kind of the core of who I am, which is just a huge curiosity. And so I have no boundaries or borders in what I read. And so I, you know, when I was a kid, I said, you know, I love to learn. I was a triple major in university. (laughs) I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I still don't. And so as a result, I mean, I love everything from, you know, from fashion to chemistry to quantum physics to, you know, flowers and gardening. And I mean, I'm just like and so so part of how I recharge is that I just allow my curious mind To go wherever it may be and so i think part of for me how i'm able to invent and have vision and create these first is because i connect the dots and so it is actually being very practical on the one hand and this goes back to essentially being a farmer and having horses and just being really grounded is like everything is about how you find a solution to a problem And then it's about then, you know, having the courage to go, wow, wow, there's something really cool happening over here in the coffee industry that I could borrow and take over here. And so I'm I'm following in the path of giants. I mean, there's amazing, innovative leaders in history that did exactly the same thing. You know, so if you think about Apple, I mean, they took borrowed things from Xerox Park. I mean the the blindness is that companies and individuals don't look at what's right in front of them and they don't connect the dots and and oftentimes because there's a lot of ego or hubris thinking oh I have to create something new you know I have to be whatever when in fact a lot of the most important you mentioned the salad in the bag i mean a lot of the most important inventions in history and a lot of the cool things i've had a privilege of being part of are just you know it's it's about real practicalities like oh well you know if you're busy and you want to have fresh produce, um, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, so it's it's about really being simple. And and I think the most, you know, look at the, you know, whoever, and I can't remember the name of the person, but it was at 3M who invented the post-it note. I mean, that person was brilliant. That person's a hero of mine, you know? And so we also have to remember that sometimes the most useful things are completely low-tech, like the post-it note, you know, really. And so it's making sure that it's fit for purpose. And so if you think about energy transition, some of these really complicated things, it's like root, root cause, root need. What do we really need? And that's part of what's missing too, is that people, people don't simplify enough. They don't, they don't take it down to root need and therefore they lose in abstraction the actual problem you're trying to solve. And that's to me, I think one of the biggest risks you know, in in tech in general is because people get romanced about the tech instead of actually the solution. And, And so that's the key thing that I anchor on is the solution. What are we really trying to solve? What is the real underlying need? And then, okay, how do we best do it in the most economic, effective, efficient way possible?
0: You mentioned the lure of the tech. There's a lot of conversation at the moment about technology and data and the role that that's going to play in oil and gas and utility companies moving forward. How important is that going to be in terms of, And I guess, actually more specifically, what do you think that oil and gas companies can learn from great innovative technology companies? Is there any examples that you take from your Silicon Valley experience around disruption that you think uh, is absolutely you know fit for purpose in the oil and gas industry at the moment?
1: Absolutely, and I'm privileged to be part of a fantastic and groundbreaking global partnership that we have with Microsoft. And so that's a really great example of part of what they're focused on with Microsoft is how can you apply their years of experience with enterprise software and now the cloud and and really being practical again with solutions to things like decarbonization. And so um, one of the things that we're doing with that partnership is that we're then applying key technology solutions behind the scenes uh, at an enterprise level across RDS. And so that is an example of, you know, it's a great partnership and it's essential and it's a win-win because um, we, and it's a good example, great partnerships anchor on where you know what your own business model is. So therefore, we're not competing with Microsoft and Microsoft's not competing with Shell. Therefore, we know what our swim lanes are and then we can come together and partner in a really practical basis around net zero and advancing things that are mutually important. And going back to, you know, what I shared with you about my own anchor vision of how I came into energy in the first place was coming from tech. And so if you think about um, a company like Microsoft and all of the growth with digital, they have to do that in a green way. So they need us just as much as we need them because otherwise their carbon footprint is going to be bigger um, than ours. You know, because of the growth of digital and the ubiquitousness of the cloud and tech. So, so it's actually, these are essential partnerships which make them really, really well aligned. And then together, they can bring their compute power, their innovation around AI and advanced internet technologies. We can bring our understanding of energy and then the prioritization of data because, you know, all data isn't useful. What you actually want are the insights that are going to drive economic activity. And so then we bring the expertise to go, no, no, actually, this portion of the data is actually when you bring it together, that's the insight that is magic. So it's a a fantastic partnership that I'm really proud to be part of.
0: I like the point that you made earlier that sort of sometimes we can be lured by the technology when a low tech solution will do and that not all data is valuable and that importance of nuance in the conversation around technology. And I wanted to ask you whether you thought there's too much conversation around technology in the kind of energy transition debate and whether you think there's other perspectives we're perhaps missing or not hearing enough of. Well, it goes back to my comment about just transition.
1: I think that the conversations around technology are essential. So it's not, a, it's not about less or more. It's about expanding the pie. And that's really, to me, what is essential about energy transition is that we don't just go you know, to switch from one commodity to the other. But we use this moment in time in society to actually expand the pie, which is one of the reasons why I'm also really privileged of having the energy access business as part of my power business. Because we need to bring everyone along with us in a just transition. And what that means is then we need to think differently about how we apply technology to make it more affordable. And that's a, a, a bringing together both the physical and the digital technology and business models so that we can actually solve affordability. Because at the end of the day, someone's got to pay for it and and it's expensive. And so if we if we think and this has been where some of the energy transition gains fall apart at a political level domestically in different countries, if if your home electricity bill goes way up, that hurts people and you, people are left behind and we saw that in Europe. Um when Germany first did its energy venda a number of years ago, Um, All of a sudden, you know, the the social justice aspect of the transition, because the the actual home electricity bills went way up, over 35% of the population could no longer pay, afford to pay for their home electricity. That doesn't work. That's not how we're going to have an energy transition. And so, what we have to do is we need to have this nexus of conversations and look at things from and policy from a systems perspective so that we don't like kind of, it's like a balloon, you know, if you push the balloon one way, then it pushes over here. So, part of a just transition is actually solved by stepping back and looking at it from a systems perspective and going, okay. How do we time the transition? How do we time the shutdown of certain plants over here and then make sure that we have a pipeline of the renewable projects coming online at the same time so there's not a
0: gap? It's these practical things that actually unlock the potential. You talked about policy debate there, and I know one of the things you've spoken about ref- before, reflecting on the energy policy debate, was the want to see more thoughtful questioning uh, of what we're trying to achieve, what the true goals are. Can you talk to us about multiple bottom line and and the role that thoughtful questioning uh, might play leading into cop twenty six or needs to play in cop twenty six?
1: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. and it and it really goes just built, building on my comment a second ago, which is really about a systems' perspective. So for example, um, I mentioned green hydrogen a minute ago. And so hydrogen is a good example of a technology that's all the rage at the moment and part of the discussion, which is a good thing. That's really good. But then we need to be very practical and go, OK, at scale, what are all the different dimensions that you need in order to make green hydrogen work? You need to be able to accelerate the permitting of large scale renewables You need to be able to have power market reform so that you can actually think about capacity. You can think about actually also then um, reform on how you, you know, what the level of injection and gas pipelines are. You have to think about permitting and siting in hubs so that you can, because this is big kit. And so then you have to think, you know, so it gets really local really fast in terms of permitting, environmental, that type of thing. And so it's a systems perspective. And, so, and then you think about you have to build a value stack for your shareholders. So if a big renewables project has lower return, then what you have to do is you have to have positive incentives on the end-use area. So, for example, in mobility for heavy-duty transportation and trucking, other uses of the green hydrogen so that you can value stack those big projects so that the investors, and then it comes back to our shareholders, they can see that they have a return that it is believable, that's gonna deliver that IRR and confidence. And so, and that you're creating again, the demand pool on the one end from different industries, whether it's the greening of steel plus the greening of heavy transport, and then the electrons coming in. And so it takes us, so what COP26 needs, it needs the policymakers and the participants To stop looking at regulation in silos and actually come together and have the tough conversations around the energy system, because it's the system that has to transform, not just a silver bullet of, you know, just wind or just hydrogen or just this or just that.
0: How challenging is it working across that the patchwork of regulatory systems that you cover from a shell public policy standpoint? You know, I'm interested in particular the landmark court ruling in the Netherlands last year with respect to emissions targets and that kind of interplay between public policy and and commerce and I guess how that uh, drives and pushes changes both, on both sides of the coin. I'd just be interested for your response and reaction to that decision and and more broadly how I guess you reflect out on how how all this contributes to the the push and pull factor that you just described there for the energy transition. Well, first of
1: all, what's really interesting about timing, and this is something that goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, where you just you just have to have perspective and context and and step back, is that you know Shell actually at our Capital Markets Day, and you know I'm you know I'm up there on the website and so forth talking about the business and where we're going. That Capital Markets Day happened earlier in the year. Um, Back in February, where we were very bullish about our acceleration in the energy transition, including um, over a 45 percent acceleration near term out to 2035. And so we were very clear about those things. And then the court ruling came out several months later because the court ruling was based on data and information that was already a number of years old. So that's a very practical perspective that the company has been accelerating moving on. I mean, so the basis of some of their argument happened before I was even hired, before I was even part of the company, and so there's a timing in the process that was out of alignment, and so of course it got lots of headlines. And and so what I know for sure is that I know what I was hired to do. I know that I, the business that I'm building, and that's what I'm focused on. And I know the work that we've done um, to put those accelerating. Um, targets in place for the business plan. And I also know practically that, for example, a big offshore wind farm, those take a few years to build. They don't, you know, there's not a magic wand. So that's also that combination of, of urgency and patience. And so for me, all of, the, all of the external debate is incredibly valuable because again, it keeps everybody focused on what we all need, which is an energy transition. And in terms of Shell, what um, I'm comfortable with is the fact that we are really leaning in with urgency and the announcements that we had already made in the capital markets were ahead of that. And that goes back to my comment about those are the sort of neutral facts, as it were. And then in terms of moving forward, part of my role is to continually be that provocateur in the company and move faster and, and, you know, grab more capital and really push, push, push. So I do that with great joy, (laughs) going back to being a tree hugger. (laughs) It's who I am. And, uh, you know, my, my shell badge still works. And, you know, I'm really pushing that greeting. And that's why going back to the systems conversation, I really push that systems level, because then you begin to see how, like the building of anything, then you see the architecture and the design come together. And then then that's when you really create, I think, that opportunity for alignment externally to move faster and farther. But it it truly takes a village, and you just, you know, any you know Mary Nichols is one of my huge, um, I'm a huge fan of hers, and she's the one that first told me years ago, Elizabeth, you're a change agent. And I'm I'm like what? <laughs> and and if you look at the persistence that Mary has had over multiple administrations over multiple decades. You know, and she was responsible for authoring and inventing, you know, the first carbon market renewable portfolio standard, low carbon fuel standard. These things that fundamentally changed the automakers and changed, you know, and then we were I was on the commercial side and uh, she was on the policy side. And together we had the privilege of working together for, you know, really hand in hand for well over a couple decades. And so it just takes persistence. Um, Because systems change, again, like I said, it's not just a single project that may grab a headline. It's this re-architecting of the entire system. And there's just no shortcut.
0: Absolutely. Now, in another hat, speaking of being a provocateur, you're on the Anglo-American board as an ESG-focused non-executive director. You mentioned shareholders, you mentioned capital. Uh, I'm interested in kind of ESG-focused directors. Do you see this part of the way forward and part of the way that the, the voice legitimacy focus of this conversation is going to grow around the board table and then ripple out, you know, commercially through, you know, structures and and, and shareholder conversations alike. Uh, can you talk to us about an ESG director and the role that you see that playing in business?
1: Yes, absolutely, Holly. And again, it's a great honour and privilege to be part of the Anglo-American board and a member of the Sustainability Committee. And so indeed, um, one of the things, and, and RE100 has really set forward in part of their recommended approach that um, companies, that publicly listed companies have um, this energy transition focus net. It's really important because... Um, Exactly to the points that we've been discussing. And so part of my role is bringing that commercial pragmatism where, you know, this is my day job. This is my area of focus. And so I understand that how we can accelerate the company and at the same time, what does a good financial project look like? What are the risks? And so it helps us exactly as we've been discussing, build that right architecture and then that combination of both support for management when management wants to be courageous, and at the same time, the push for management when management may not be going fast enough. And so, it, you know, that's really the role because the NED has to do those two things. The NED has to balance, you know, representing the shareholder and, and what a shareholder wants is a company that's going to grow not just be successful in this quarter, but the next quarter and in 10 years from now. And so it's that combination of balancing that really important tension between near-term immediate results and then building that pathway for performance over time. And I I love that. I absolutely love it. And I I love being a NED. It's a huge honor. And, And one of the things that is why I chose Anglo is that if you look at uniquely about the business model, its business model is fundamentally different than the other miners. And it's already ahead on ESG, and and then we're going to continue to push even farther and be even more ahead. And so if you look at all the things that are important in energy transition, whether it's electric vehicles and batteries or hydrogen electrolysis, all of those things require precious metals and copper and the the core products that Anglo makes. And so that's something to me that's really aligned um, in terms of professionally, you know, whether you're at Intel or whether you at Apple, you need an Anglo. And so, um, and that it's ethics and responsibility um, towards the stewardship of the local communities in South Africa, the ethics and the real deep community safety and integrity is far and above. I mean, so it just aligned with everything I believe in. And so I'm super proud to be part of that board.
0: Can I ask, you know, I'm thinking about the gender equality conversations I've read so much over the years where, you know, often it, it, it's an extraordinary amount of pressure to put on one set of shoulders where you're the only woman in the room or in, in the instance of kind of the, the kind of corporate standard, the only ESG director. You know, is this an example of not letting perfect be the enemy of the good? Progress has to start somewhere and this is a great first step? Or do you already see that achieving the role that it needs to in terms of really being a catalyst for broader conversation? I guess, where might you want to see the end state of ESG around a Board table?
1: Well, ultimately, what I believe is ESG around the board table is the whole board's responsibility. And so that is because remember, ESG, it's not just about environmental, it's about social, it's about the combination of all these things. It's ultimately about ethical stewardship for the company. And so to me, you know, all these aspects of impact and, uh, you know, a phrase that I love is, is doing well by doing good. You know, and so to me, every single board member should be an ESG board member because that is actually our human integrity. It's making sure that you know the workforce is ethically treated with fair compensation. It's about safety, personal safety, asset safety. It's about environmental stewardship. That's a great company, and so so that's where really ESG truly is every single board member's responsibility and every person in management's responsibility. And going back to Shell, something I'm really proud of is one of the first things I did when I first joined Shell at the end of 2018 was actually help establish the criteria where all of us as senior executives would be scored on our ESG contribution in the company and became a scorecard then for C. So what you what you measure is what matters. And so this is something that, that you know, is, is, you know, I'm really, really proud of, and I think this is exactly where all of us as senior leaders, as NEDs, as board directors, as executive leadership, as CEOs, you know, that's, that's just fundamentally, I think, the opportunity going forward with society is that commercially businesses have the opportunity to be incredibly powerful forces for good.
0: I love that piece around reflecting ESG in KPIs and reward and recognition, the way that actually rolls out through the enterprise. I want to ask you, when when Shell particularly, but any company kind of announces a strategy, it's a market signal for a lot of things. But one of them is for skills and future jobs. And we talked about jobs are a critical part of this. What... When you announced your strategy, was that a market signal for when it comes to future energy leaders, for skills that are going to be in demand in the business, for those who are thinking about you know the employment plan and the skills that are going to be in demand over the next you know two decades in the energy sector in Shell, what is it a market signal for? What's changing?
1: Well, clearly, clearly, I think it is absolutely the perfect time to be coming into the energy uh, sector because it's clearly the direction of where we're headed. And so, There's to your point, it's really, it's very clear that there's going to be great jobs in wind and in solar and energy efficiency and e-mobility. And so um, young graduates and and young people in school can see that there's, you know, a line of sight to these amazing careers. And I think that is tremendously exciting. I know that when I talk to my own nieces and nephews, you know, they're really eager to know what I'm doing and and you know I've I've had you know a number of different young people come and shadow me on the job, and I really love mentorship and so forth. And so I mean it's an incredible. What I encourage is that the energy sector there's no better time to be part of the energy sector because enough of the hard yards have been done so that it really it really is at this takeoff point for acceleration and growth um, in green and clean. And that is that is so exciting and so much fun. And it the thing is also great in terms of diversity is that you need every different skill set you need engineers you need chemists you need philosophers and writers and economists and mathematicians and so that's the beautiful thing as well you need industrial designers you need you know you need all these different diversity of skill sets so regardless of what your particular interest is or your own passion as a student whether it's you know biology or math or english literature there is a way to participate and make a difference in climate change and the energy transition. And, and it takes a village, it takes all of us. And so what I encourage anyone at any age um, to, to think about how they personally can make a difference because the planet needs us all and society needs us all.
0: And so whatever role that you take can make a positive difference. If I can ask one more question on that topic, you know, there's been an extraordinary youth climate movement globally in the last five years, led by the likes of Greta Thunberg and others. You know, and we say, you know, everybody's welcome. There's a lot of people who are sort of saying, well, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a part of that. You know, I don't think that the oil and gas industry is putting, you know, profits uh, in, in the right order relative to the planet's well being and health and, and the very livelihood of my generation. How would you, I guess, respond to the comments from that generation of climate activists in particular around their role and, and the interplay or otherwise that might actually be able to happen between companies like yourselves and people who really believe in a, a very different world order from what we've got right now that they hope to see in the future?
1: Well, I mean, on a personal level, I mean, I think Greta is a hero. I would love to meet her. I think that. Her courage and her advocacy, um, her anger, um, you know, has been. I mean, her coming out, speaking at the United Nations. These voices, you talk about courage. um, You know, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to stand up and say this is what I believe, and I have huge respect for that. I have huge, huge regard, and so each voice is essential. That is the true meaning of diversity. We need that. In terms of the specifics about, um, like I said, you know, the position that people say, well, you should stop everything, you know, that would have dramatic impact on the global economy. And so I think the challenge is then how do we actually transition faster, continue to transition faster and this goes back to finance. We have to have sustainable finance that supports new asset classes, new types of infrastructure, new types of business models. So to quote Bina, if you don't have that missing money on the table, because actually, you know, if you look at like Shell, our industry, we are pushing really hard on sustainability finance. We're trying to find the solutions because believe us, we, you know, we don't want to be left behind. You know, we're looking for our shareholders. We want to be a successful leading company in the next hundred years. You know, look at Shell's market cap. It's really shrunk. You know, so nobody wants that, right? And so it's about how do you create a virtuous transition that is accelerating. And so all the different perspectives and outside voices contribute to having that conversation and the conversations that need happen. And so personally, I think Greta is amazing. I really, really admire her on so many different levels. And at the same time, I also am proud of what I'm doing. And I made a choice to join this company because, like I said, big companies like this that have that brand equity, that have the balance sheet, these are exactly the companies we need to make the transition. It's the same with companies like Microsoft or others, you know, we need the big enterprise companies to make that transition to keep the economy going, because then it goes back to the virtuous cycle, people need employment and need jobs, which is part of the just transition. So, you know, and there's a trickle effect across the economy. And we've seen this with the pandemic, because the fact of the matter is governments can't just print money and create, you know, sort of you know, situations where you're just creating artificial debt, that is not sustainable for society. So it's, these are complex, multi-dimensional problems that we all need to lean in and try to solve together.
0: Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for the way you've taken us into the complexity of the global energy transition today. I think I I love your perspective around, you know, big change takes big resources, but it also takes diverse perspectives. It takes uncomfortable and tough conversations, and it most certainly takes new sustainable financial models, asset classes and ways of working. We really appreciate your contribution to the Trailblazers series and your contribution to the energy conversation at large. Thank you so much.
1: Well, Holly, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. I wish we were together in the same room, but I do look forward to meeting you in person one of these days and uh, stay safe and be well. And I look forward
0: to uh, speaking again. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.